Welcome everyone to the Planet Pantry Podcast, a show about all the pantry staples that people reach for every day to make the foods they love. We've got a great one for you. Today, we're going to be exploring plantains and by inevitable association, bananas. This is an important one to me because I hated bananas growing up. Something between the taste and the texture just didn't sit well with young me. Plantains got absorbed into this disdain for bananas, and any time they were served at an African restaurant or at someone's house, I would usually pawn them off to someone in exchange for something else, and I wouldn't realize until much later why this was always so easy to do. When I fell in love with my Puerto Rican girlfriend, I knew that plantains were inevitable. I resolved that as soon as they were served to me, I would begin the process of conditioning myself to like them, so as to avoid offending family down the line. But this practice proved unnecessary as soon as I was presented some red beans and rice with a side of tostones, which are fried plantains. I was always a picky eater growing up, and I didn't even like beans. But when I had these beans cooked in sofrito with a sasson packet and that amazing sauce thickened with pumpkin, my reservations around beans, which I had held on to for two decades, just disappeared and a whole new world of bean dishes opened right in front of me. I followed the beans with a reluctant bite from the tostones, and that crispy on the outside, steamy and flaky on the inside, starchiness seasoned with the Goya adobo for the second time in one night changed my entire perspective on food. Over time, I felt embarrassed about this, and it led me to reevaluate how I felt about a lot of food, and also to purposefully seek out foods that looked weird to me. And time after time, I was pleasantly surprised when I just gave a chance to things I wouldn't normally try. I credit five items with opening my mind to the vast culinary world, and those are plantains, daucher, natto, fish sauce, and mussels. And they represent the entire reason I started this podcast. If people eat it somewhere in the world and get joy from it, it's at least worth a try. Everyone is entitled to their preferences and opinions, but I think that there are too many preconceived notions about a lot of foods out there, and I hope that by sharing the stories of these basic pantry items and a little about how people use them to make the foods they love, I can play at least a small role in facilitating the same revelations I had around foods that had previously made me feel uncomfortable. It's a rich and exciting world out there, and we're going to explore it together, starting today with plantains and their journey around the world. So without further ado, let's get into it. So the story of bananas is an incredibly complicated one to track. This is for fascinating and beautiful reasons that we will absolutely be getting into later, but the fact remains that this is a tough one. And before we get into the amazing story of how bananas and plantains made their way to tables around the world, let's quickly explore the exciting subject of taxonomy. And this should be relatively simple. Everything in the natural world is classified using the system that we're all at least somewhat familiar with, which breaks things down by kingdom, family, genus, species, etc. But the banana creates its own rules, and even this simple task becomes incredibly complicated. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details of why this is especially difficult, but I will quickly sum it up. So Charles Linnaeus himself, the man who is often credited as the father of modern taxonomy, divided bananas into two categories, Musa paradisiaca and Musa sapientum, or cooking bananas and dessert bananas, respectively. 
respectively. However, this simple system proved inadequate as researchers kept discovering more and more cultivars throughout Southeast Asia and people started naming cultivars that were already named. This obviously got real messy, and a series of changes and improvements have brought us to the incredibly confusing, at least to a layperson like myself, system that we use today. This system organizes banana cultivars based on a hybrid model which combines the number of their chromosomes with either genetic data or a score based on 15 characteristics with varying degrees of impact on the banana's classification. It's a bit of a mess, but we're not trying to classify bananas here. We're trying to figure out how they made it into all sorts of delicious foods and dishes all over the world. So, some quick facts that I've boiled down for you are that there are anywhere from 300 to right around a thousand kinds of bananas out there. And the ones that we eat and grow are almost all hybrids of two wild species, Musa acuminata and Musa balbiciana. And although there are some exceptions, for the most part, they still fall into the categories of cooking banana and dessert banana. Now, everything in the world started somewhere. Humans initially migrated out of Africa, potatoes come from the Andes, and bananas have their origins in Southeast Asia. The two species, of which nearly all cultivated species are hybrids, can be found wild from as far north as southern China, as far south as northern Australia, as far west as India, and as far east as modern-day New Guinea. It's believed that the Papua people of modern-day New Guinea began cultivating these wild species around 7000 BCE, and hybridized them by bringing them to the surrounding islands and combining them with other wild species to ultimately make a more human-friendly banana. And it's through this trade that they would eventually be picked up by the Austronesian people, and this is where the mysticism, beauty, and confusion around this story grows tenfold. So boats have been used by humans since way back in prehistory. Circumstantial evidence points to the use of boats in some form or another as far back as maybe 900,000 BCE, but no later than 100,000 BCE. The first purpose-built boats ever made by humans were likely dugouts, which were canoes made by hollowing out tree trunks. That description doesn't quite do these boats justice though because they are no schlubs. In 1978, one of these canoes, made based on ancient Haida designs, traveled all the way from Vancouver, Canada to Hawaii. And this was done to add legitimacy to the claim that this was done in ancient times by Haida traveling west over the Pacific Ocean. So the reason I mention boats is because they are the key to how bananas spread around the world. People have been living on the islands of Southeast Asia for around 70,000 plus years, and this region came to be dominated by a group of people who, sometime between 10,000 BCE and 6,000 BCE, left mainland China to inhabit what is modern-day Taiwan. This is the origin of the legendary Austronesian people. It's hard to summarize the Austronesian people, they are almost mythological in their accomplishments and their story. 
They were the first humans to develop boats, which were capable of traveling very long distances, and they were not afraid to use them. In an almost inexplicably adventurous and brave expansion, the Austronesians spread from Madagascar to Hawaii. And this massive expansion was at least partly fueled by bananas and plantains. Bananas grow pretty much anywhere that the Austronesians would go, and with their high nutritional value, they made a great starter crop as these amazing peoples colonized islands all over the Pacific and Indian Oceans. And just think that they did this not by reading astronomy, although they did eventually learn to read the stars, many of their early voyages were navigated using things like light reflecting from lagoons, the growth patterns of different types of seaweed, and the flight patterns of birds. It's crazy to think that at the same time as the Egyptian Middle Kingdom began, as cacao was being domesticated for the first time in modern-day Guatemala, and as the Chinese Jia Dynasty was starting, these people who shared their roots in the Austronesian family of languages and would eventually become what we know today as Polynesians, among many other peoples, were setting sail from Taiwan to eventually land in the Philippines, Indonesia, Japan, ultimately as far as Hawaii and Madagascar. And some even speculate that they made it to South America, or at least to Easter Island, off the coast of Chile. Now, when it comes to claims like that, it's important to mention that because this unbelievable expansion happened mostly before recorded history, Pretty much everything I'm going to be talking about here is contested in some way. I've tried my best to stick to the sides of these stories which have the most consensus, and I've put most of the sources I've used to research this podcast in the show notes. I'm not great at building a bibliography here, but, you know, there's a bunch of links you can follow if you're interested in following up on a certain aspect of this story. But I do implore you to read more into every part of this week's story because there are so many rabbit holes that I'm sure you could have a ton of fun going down, at least one of them. But it's also important to remember that the Austronesians weren't an empire. They didn't have complicated, centralized control over the places that they colonized. Rather, when environmental or social factors like food supply or population growth required more land, they moved to new places, sometimes very far away, and over time, the people of this common origin developed unique and individual cultures in all of their new homes, often influenced by the nearby populations. Think of Austronesian history in terms of language. Languages from Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, and many more share their roots with the Austronesian language system. But all of that aside, if you follow the path of Austronesian expansion, bananas traveled from their origin in the islands of Southeast Asia to fuel new civilizations throughout the Pacific Islands, Asia, and by as early as the first millennium BCE, they made it as far as Madagascar and India. The origins of cultivated bananas in the Indian subcontinent are pretty hard to pin down. Some wild species of banana are native to India, and it's widely accepted that there are two waves of bananas moving west from their origins in Asia. The latter of those two waves happened when Muslim merchants rediscovered and redistributed 
bananas in a period from around 700 to 1200 AD and brought them to many of the places in North Africa and Moorish Spain where they're still used today. But they definitely existed in India as a cultivated crop long before that. There are references to them in Buddhist texts from the 4th century BCE. Alexander the Great loved them, brought them on his travels after trying them in India, and there's even evidence that they were known to the Indus Valley civilization as early as 2000 BCE. There are so many unclear, not totally substantiated, and confusing possible points of this story. They don't currently have enough evidence to be incorporated into the real story, but there are so many that it's hard to leave them out entirely. There's some evidence, for example, pointing towards the possibility that the Austronesians brought bananas to the Indus Valley civilization around 2000 BCE. And there's very unsubstantiated evidence that they may have been brought to South America as early as 300 BCE. And importantly, there is some evidence that they made it to Cameroon as early as 1000 BCE, but how this would have happened is very hard to imagine. But their arrival in West Africa is key to the story of how bananas and plantains as we know them today ended up on our plates. So let's explore some of the possibilities as to how they got there. The farthest off possibility is that by some incredible expansion of their legendary status, the Austronesians made it around the southern tip of Africa and ended up in Cameroon. This would be amazing, but it's unlikely since the clear signs of Austronesian presence kind of stop as far west as Madagascar. The next, more likely scenario is that yams and bananas were brought to Madagascar by Austronesian speakers and made it to mainland Africa, where they helped fuel the Bantu expansion. Around 4,000 years ago, speakers of the Bantu family of languages migrated from West Africa to eventually cover nearly all of Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's possible that they picked things up from the Malagasy-speaking Austronesian descendants of Madagascar. But in all likelihood, they made their way to West Africa when Arab conquerors brought them west in the 4th century BCE. But regardless of how they moved around, we know the bananas made it to the far west reaches of Africa and Europe no later than the 15th century, but they had likely been in many of these places much earlier than that. So at this point, I've decided to split this episode in two. It's just too long, complex, and important of a story to be told in one 30-minute episode. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to explore how people from Hawaii to India to West Africa make use of these wonderful fruits, and next week we'll dive deep as they make their way to the Americas, and we'll explore all of the bright and dark sides of that amazing story. Bananas today are an unbelievably valuable crop by far the biggest fruit crop in the world and if you include plantains we produce as many bananas as the next two fruits apples and oranges combined the human race gets the majority of our calories from only 10 staple crops the top three corn rice and wheat alone make up 51 percent of our entire caloric intake worldwide and plantains, not bananas altogether, but just plantains, are number 10 on this list. Here in the US and Canada, where I grew up, we're almost exclusively familiar with the sweet, 
yellow Cavendish bananas that many people eat as a snack. And we've all seen plantains and probably tried them. They usually share a small part of the larger Cavendish display at the grocery store, but they're certainly not a staple of our diets. But this list of staple crops puts them right up there with potatoes, soybeans, and cassava. Plantains and cooking bananas in general used to make up as much as 85% of the total banana market in the world. That has changed a little bit as the popularity of our sweet yellow friends has skyrocketed over the years. But it shouldn't be any secret that people in different parts of the world eat different things. And it's important to remember going forward that plantains are an essential food, which as you'll see is as versatile as the potato. And it makes up an essential part of the diets of millions of people around the world, along with the also very important but delicate Cavendish sweet bananas. Now as we go into the banana and plantain based foods of the world, it's important to remember that I am but one lonely human and with a limited knowledge at that. I try my best at researching these dishes and I have some experience with this stuff from my work in various kitchens, but I couldn't possibly do everyone justice. So if you have a plantain or a banana recipe that you're passionate about, send it my way and I'll give it some recognition on the various social platforms. So starting off with the Pacific Islands, we already see a ton of variety in the implementation of bananas in cooking. Any fans of Hawaiian culture will immediately recognize poi, at least in name. Poi is a dish made by smashing cooked taro root until it reaches a thick, gloopy kind of consistency and sometimes it's fermented to get a bit of a sour flavor. Taro is the more popular medium for this famous dish, but other starchy fruits like plantains or breadfruit are often also used, especially in Samoa. Banana plants produce flowers, which eventually blossom into the bananas that we harvest, but the flowers themselves are eaten in many parts of the world. The petals, florets, and hearts of the flower all have a variety of uses and are used in Pacific Island cuisines in many dishes, including soups and salads. A famous Samoan dish calls for cooking bananas to be stewed in coconut milk. And in the islands of what is known as French Polynesia, you can find a unique variety called fey bananas, which, unlike most bananas cultivated today, don't share those two common ancestors. These beautiful orange-yellow bananas can be eaten raw or cooked, and are especially popular in the Solomon Islands. The Philippines also have a banana that can be eaten raw or cooked, the Saba banana, and they are famous for a wide variety of banana dishes in the Philippines, but something that definitely is worth noting is banana ketchup. A condiment similar to tomato ketchup, this delicious sauce is sweet, acidic, and a great complement to many things. Banana ketchup is also starting to get quite a bit of international recognition as it follows the prolific Philippine diaspora, making this one of the great examples in this story of people bringing their foods to their new homes. The originators of the banana themselves, the Papuans of New Guinea, are quite well known for their saksak, a dumpling made by mashing bananas with sago pearls, which are similar to tapioca, and steaming the mixture in banana leaves before serving with warm coconut milk. Banana leaves are used pretty much anywhere bananas are grown, as a vessel for steaming or for any number of culinary applications, from smoking to braising and even serving. Indonesia has an amazing dessert called pisang goreng, 
which are fritters made by tossing bananas in batter and frying them until golden brown delicious. This exists in many places, including Malaysia, where it's known as Kui Kodak. And milk thickened and flavored with bananas is a popular drink in many places, including Korea and Japan, where it can be purchased under many brands. And Vietnam has a wide selection of banana desserts, including a steamed banana cake, banana pudding, and fried bananas. In Thailand, Cambodia, or Laos, you might meet Nang Thani, or Phi Thani, the ghost of a young woman that's said to haunt the trees of certain inedible varieties of bananas. But don't worry about her too much, she's scary but friendly, occasionally giving food to passing monks. In India, the banana takes on deep cultural significance. Its evergreen nature makes it a symbol at weddings to, among other things, encourage the bride and groom to live a life like the plantain tree, which gives a lot but expects nothing in return. This is a theme in the cultural perception of bananas, and especially plantains, in many places. They can sustain a population with a lot of fruit, but they are resilient and they don't demand a lot of attention. And in addition to serving as symbols and medicines, bananas and plantains are used in many great Indian dishes, from sweet lassis and halvas to several plantain preparations like avials, palias, and podimas. Most of Europe hosts a climate that isn't exactly friendly to banana plants, but even the northern European nations enjoy bananas with dishes like Swedish Flying Jacob, a chicken and banana casserole, or British Banafi pie, a pie made with cream, bananas, and toffee. And southern European nations enjoy bananas in a variety of sweet and savory dishes. Spain, Portugal, France, and Greece, among others, all have some level of banana production. But bananas, and especially plantains, are really used to their full potential across the continent of Africa. Uganda, Cameroon, and Ghana are all among the world's top banana producers, and Uganda is the single largest producer of plantains on Earth. Despite being first in plantain production, however, they are 40th in exports. And this is because the fruits make up such a large part of the Ugandan diet that they just don't end up sending many abroad. The most popular variety in Uganda is the Matuka cooking banana. It can be mashed, stewed, fried, and served with pretty much anything. And other East African dishes include mtsola, a fish stew from Comoros, kadaka akondro, braised beef with plantains from Madagascar, and matoke, or plantains steamed with beans, beef, and coconut milk from Tanzania, among many, many more. In West Africa, you can find just as great a number of plantain dishes as in the East. Ghana has an amazing variety of snacks, including kelewele, spiced fried plantains, and spiced fritters known as titale. And again, I'm so sorry for what I'm sure has just been a massacre of various pronunciations from around the world of all these different dishes. Feel free to correct me however you see fit. But in the river state of southern Nigeria, a dish called tempiagba is made by mashing plantains, corn flour, shredded fish, and crayfish along with spices into a kind of pudding. And across western and central Africa, a mash of plantains and cassava is called fufu, and it's widely enjoyed. 
All of this barely scratches the surface of what is truly one of the world's most versatile foods. Because of time constraints, I had to boil something that billions of people eat every day into a handful of dishes, and I know that some people are probably sad that their country or their favorite dish didn't get any kind of representation here. But again, please send me all of your favorites and I'll try and feature as many as I can on my social accounts. So that's the story of how bananas made it from their prehistoric origins in Southeast Asia to West Africa. We also went over some of the ways that plantains are used today in a wide variety of dishes. Next week, we're going to explore how bananas made it from West Africa to the Caribbean, South, Central, and North America. And I bet you can guess how that happened. I'm going to be honest, from this point forward, this story gets pretty dark. A lot of human suffering went into making bananas and plantains as we know them today possible. And we're going to explore the very dark and all of the very bright parts of this story as well next Sunday. But in the meantime, seek out some restaurants that serve plantain dishes. We all know that they could use our support right now. Also, pick some up at your grocery store and try some recipes. There's a wealth of resources out there and you might have to go a few pages deep into your Google search to find the good ones. But trust me, this is something you want in your repertoire. And while you're cooking and eating those great dishes, think about the connection you've made, however small and indirect, between yourself and the millions of people around the world enjoying their plantains along with you. This week, I included many of the sources I used in the show notes. They don't all fit, but I'm happy to fill in the blanks where anybody needs them. And as always, I encourage people to reach out with anything they'd like to add or correct about this week's show. And if you like the show, consider supporting me on Patreon and following me on Instagram at Planet Pantry Pod. I'll see you all next week as we continue this amazing dive into the world of plantains and bananas.